Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, a letter that the apostle had written to the church in Ephesus in order to encourage them and to strengthen them in their faith. Throughout this letter, we see John revealing what it means to be authentically Christian. The essence of authentic Christianity, John seems to reveal quite clearly, is found in fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, fellowship with God the Father that comes through Jesus Christ. And throughout this letter, John is calling us and calling his readers into fellowship, into that relationship, and explaining to us what promises we have, what relationship we have with our God, which is unique from all of the religions. It's not merely that we are forgiven of our sin and that we are set free from the punishments of it, but we are invited into an intimate relationship with the God who created all things and the one who has loved us beyond our ability to even comprehend. We are called to have that relationship. As we looked last week in verses 12 through 14, John begins to uh, describe, or he took a, a time to describe that the, there is a progression of the maturity of the relationship that we have with God the Father. And that in each stage, beautiful as it is, the deeper, the more we mature, the more we grow, then the deeper the intimacy that we have with God the Father. To the point that we are excited when we first enter into the relationship until when it seems like it should be old and dull, we realize the beauty is found in an intimacy and a joy that is of greater priority than anything else than we have in our lives. Now as we look this morning, we see that John shifts gears a little bit, and he shows us that in our fellowship with God, the effect of that fellowship with God will have upon us is that it will inevitably make us distinct from the people who are apart from God. In fact, that to walk with God, to have fellowship with God, and to not be different than those who are apart from Christ is really antithetical to what authentic Christianity is about. John is very direct in the passage we look at this morning. We'll be reading this morning in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Before we come to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come now and as an act of worship, we long to hear your voice speaking to us by your Holy Spirit. We have your words that are recorded for us that we are instructed to study and are able to study and to gain great benefit from. But Jesus himself reminded us that all of the truths that are wrapped up and contained in your word are not easily discerned. In fact, must be revealed to us by your spirit. So Lord, we do pray that your spirit would be at work now, that we would not rest on our own intellect or insights or understanding, but that your spirit would speak your truth to us through these verses, applying it to our lives, guiding us, giving us wisdom, that we may walk with you, that we may have the benefits of this passage, that we may be nourished and strengthened by the very words that you have revealed to us. Lord, this is our need. This is our desire. We pray for it with great boldness because it's in accord with your promise to us. Speak to us now. We pray in the name of Christ, who is your word incarnated. Amen. 
1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. May the Lord give us understanding of his holy word. Author and theologian Michael Horton described a, a quandary that he had in his childhood, a quandary that occurred in church. In his book, Where in the World is the Church?, Mike explains this. I remember, I remember being confused as a boy by two popular hymns that seemed to be quite contradictory. The first was, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. The other was, this is my father's world. I wonder to myself, if this is my father's world, why am I just passing through? Why is this world not my home? And so he was perplexed and he was confused. Perhaps not alone. Some of you who have grown up in church may have been confused either by those two hymns or sentiments that are similar, that both are declared to be true, both seem to be true, but there is a, a disconnect that can be very confusing. As children, we're honest about those disconnects. We ask questions. As we grow and mature, we learn to deal with cognitive dissonance and we don't ask the questions anymore. We just hold to be this true and this to be true and we declare it to be a mystery. Some things are a mystery. And some things we just don't understand. And I think this is one of the things that we just have not asked enough questions because as we look at this landscape of Christianity, the landscape of the evangelical church, and even if I'm narrow in my scope, and the evangelical church in the United States, I see a great deal of confusion related to the very thing that Mike Horton was confused at, about as a child and that we continue to be confused at, about as churches, as denominations, and certainly as individual Christians. And that is, how is it that we're supposed to relate to this world? What is our place in this world? Now, in our text, John does shift gears briefly, and what he does in this is he turns his attention to what the Christian's attitude should be about this world. In verse 15, he's pretty clear. Do not love the world or the things in this world. Seems pretty clear, pretty straightforward. I mean, we look at that, it's, it's abrupt, no doubt, but it's, in its directness, it, it gets straight to the point. We recognize that it's categorical. What are we not supposed to love? The world. Well, that's a pretty big, con uh, pretty big concept. We're not supposed to love the world. So we not only have it in, a, in categorical, we have a com comprehensive aspect. Don't love the world. Don't love anything in the world. That seems pretty simple. I'm done. No, I'm not done. That would mean miracle. No, um, if going, and it would be of no help to anybody whatsoever. And so while we see in its directness some clarity, almost anybody that is thinking is going to be asking a question that is, shows us that it's not quite as clear as we would think. I don't know how we would not ask the question, what is, what is, that just seems harsh. What does John mean by world? What, what's John talking about? 
In essence, John's talking about is the relationship that we have with the world or the view that we have with the world, the way we live in it, the way we're part of it, the way we relate to it. In a, world, in a, a word that we use, throw around in churches, worldliness. John's talking about the whole idea of worldliness, which is just how we relate to the world around us. Now, when I became a Christian, I was a little older as than some. I was, uh, uh, I was just starting college when I, I became a Christian. And so it was a concept that I, un, I was told and understood early on. We're not to be worldly. Got it. I was a, not worldly. If anybody asked me what that meant, I would have absolutely no idea. I just knew I was supposed to be against it. I just had no idea of how to define it and how to live it and how to embody it. And I don't think I'm alone. And I think this question has caused a great deal of frustration, a great deal of difficulty, and a great deal of impotence in the lives of the Christians and the mission that God has called us to be involved in this world. We don't know exactly how to relate to the world. We certainly don't relate to the world around us in a uniform manner, that all Christians seem to understand what John is saying here, and we all deal with it in the same way. We are a confused bunch. And I want to look at this passage this morning and see what it is that John says to us. But I want to do it in a couple of ways. One is I want to look at first as what worldliness is not, at least as John's describing it. Then we'll look at what worldliness is. And then we'll get to John's broader point, which is the, the results of worldliness. And those will be how we're going to look at this text. And we'll see where we end up when we're done. But we need to begin with the question of what worldliness is, is not. So to understand what it is that John is telling us that we are to do or, or to love and what it is we're not to love, we need to understand what it is that he is not saying to us. Now, the key in this, I think, is found in verses 15 and 16 when I mean, he's clear, don't, do not love the world or anything in the world. And then he goes into verse 16, and uh, there's, uh, there's kind of a hyphen there. We'll take the hyphen out, but if you take the hyphen out of the verse, verse 16, for all that is in the world... Skip the words in the hyphen, because those are just simply descriptive, and finish the sentence. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And so John is saying we're not to love the world, because anything that is in the world is of the world that doesn't come from God. And so that's the reason that we're not to love it, because not only does it not come from God, but it's in rival to God. Now, when we read that in one sense, we, we need to be asking, does John really mean nothing in this world? Is John really opposed to everything that is, is in the world? I mean, that doesn't leave us with much. And is it even consistent with what John has written elsewhere in the Scriptures? I mean, it's in his gospel that we hear that God so loved the world. It seemed like if God loves the world that we should love what God loves. But here he's saying, don't love the world, don't love anything in it, don't have anything to do with it. But I think it's these words that would suggest to us that John's not necessarily talking about the world as we are inclined to use it. And it's important for us to understand that the word world, or cosmos as he uses it here, is used in different ways. And so to clarify what he's not using, the word cosmos, and what parts of the world that we're not, we need to understand some of the things that John understood. I mean, there's no question that John understood that God spoke the world into existence and then declared it is good. We see that in Genesis 1. All of creation belongs to God. And that was, even though that was before the fall, John certainly understands the psalmist declares, the earth is the Lord's. 
and that even the rocks and trees and everything testifies, as Paul understood, that all of creation screams there is a God. That would indicate that it's good because God created it and it's good. John would have also understood that man was created after God's own image and therefore has value. And when God made man, he said, this is very good. And therefore, all people, having been created after the image of God, have a value, they have a dignity, there is a worth, their rights are to be protected, they're not to be violated. John knew all of that, that God created the earth, the earth is good, God loves the earth, we ought to love the earth. God created people, we ought to love people. John understands very clearly that God loved the world so much that he emptied heaven of its greatest treasure, Jesus Christ, in order to redeem the people of the earth and the earth itself, to redeem it, to buy it back, that which is rightfully his in the first place. And in order to do that, Christ came and assumed the very nature of the people on earth that if we were to take it, what John says, simply at quick glance value, we would hate the very people that Jesus came to be like in the first place because we're on the earth. We were born on this earth. And if we were to hear what John is saying and saying that anything that's on the earth is not of God, it's of the earth, John understands that all people were born created after the image of God and that Christ assumed the nature of our humanity and continues to dwell with our nature as well. John would have also understood that God, it was God who created both the body and the spirit. And the scriptures teach us that God is redeeming them both. He's not simply concerned about your spirit, but everything that you are, everything that I am, everything that humanity is, God is concerned with both. I mean, there's any number of things that we could look at in the scriptures, and we understand what John understands, and John would have known that because John speaks about that in this letter. He speaks about it in his epistle. He speaks about it when he writes later on in his life in Revelation. We have no reason to believe that John had just temporarily forgotten these things. And since we know that John knew these things, when he's writing this passage that we're looking at right now, we have to assume that John was doing what we do when we're involved in a conversation. He's so focused on what he wants to say, there are other things that are assumed that we would know, that we would not take things to an absurdity. You don't want to have conversations like that where you speak in absolute terms because of the intensity and the importance of whatever it is that you're talking about, and then people try to show you the hypocrisy of other things that you've said. And we shouldn't apply that to John either. John here is telling us that worldliness is not loving the creation which God created and therefore desiring to see as stewards of that that we continue to be involved and invest in and making the earth beautiful and make sure that it continues to be beautiful. He's not suggesting that we should hate people, but rather John continually tells us that we're to love one another, to love our neighbors. Jesus says love our enemies. In other words, there's nobody that falls outside of the scope of who we are to love because they are all created with that dignity. John is not suggesting that we withdraw from the world entirely and just create up an alternative society and have nothing to do with anybody else. That's counter to the teachings of all of Scripture, counter to what Christ has said, that you, my people, are called to be salt and light to this world. And salt that is not out in the midst of the people is absolutely worthless. Old illustration saying it's just salt that's still in the salt shaker. It's doing nobody any good whatsoever. So when we come to this passage, we need to understand first what John is not saying because this has caused a lot of confusion. And a lot of people have withdrawn, at least in some ways, from the culture as a whole. Not only those who have extreme sects that are of asceticism, whether old monastic orders 
or Amish-type people, but Christians have been prone over the years to create their own little enclaves, or what sociologists call Christian ghettos, where we just live amongst ourselves and have no contact with others, except every once in a while, we'll throw a little tract over a wall to tell them, we love you, just stay away from us. God loves you, but his people don't want anything to do with you. It's just totally antithetical to what all the scripture teaching, and so it's absurd to assume that when John says, don't love the world or anything in the world, that he's calling us to that kind of a life. John does have a very intentional thing in mind. And he is speaking to us. And he does tell us what worldliness is. Particularly, we see it encapsulated in verse 16. But really, the overarching thing that John is reminding us is that worldliness is not about the things that of God's creation, but worldliness is a, the systems and the values of this world created by man that are either antithetical to God, hostile to God, or just ignore God altogether. There are values by which the world operates, rewarding those who embrace them, excel in them, punishing those who ignore them. And John is very specific here, and he says that they generally come in three, in three broad categories, and that's what he's describing in the, in the parts of verse 16. He says that the first category of these values or these systems is, at least in the ESV, says the desires of the flesh. I think the NIV is better in the descriptive term, still the same word, but it's the, the lusts of the flesh. The reason I think it's more descriptive is because not only is it more intense, but it, it helps us to move away from simple desire and assuming that desires themselves are wrong. The idea of a lust is not that it is, uh, is something that's out of place, is, and we, we understand just from the nature of itself, a lust is simply a desire, but it's an intense desire. It's a desire that is an out of order, an inordinate desire. The desire themselves are not wrong, and the things that are desired in the, are not necessarily wrong. But what John, is, what John is talking about here when he talks about the desires or the lusts of the flesh are basically a desire that is out of order for things dealing with sensuality. Whether that is sexuality, whether that's food and drink, whether that's just simple comfort, anything that deals with our senses, we rightly desire. But sometimes we make those desires the ultimate and we live for those desires. And we do everything we do for those desires so that we may experience it. We certainly understand that as we look around our world, whether it's on the relatively ben seemingly benign things, whether it's the internet or the television, about the billion dollar sex industry in our country and in our world. Reading in the news about, even if that was itself not a, a problem, but because there is money to be had, there are those who are enslaved into the sex industry involuntarily. They're trafficked, whether it's women, young girls, young boys, because there's money to be made and people are giving themselves to the lust of the flesh and desire for the sexuality. People are willing to engage in traffic in that business. The alcohol industry as well Recognize, makes a large portion of, of money from people who are simply trying to numb themselves from the issues of the world. The problem is not the alcohol. The problem is certainly not sex because both are gifts that have come from God. But it is what people do with them when those desires of the flesh, those become out of order and we begin to live for them that there is a problem. 
People order their lives in order to have those. The second category John talks about, he says here, are the desires of the eye, or again in the, ASV, in the NIV, the, the lust of the eyes. And what he's talking about there is not anything necessarily physical, but it's a reminder to us that most of the information that we gather, and therefore the most influential perhaps organ that we have is our eyes because there's where we gather information. We see what's going on around us. We see what other people have. We see what other people look like. We look into the mirror, we see what we look like, what we have, or we are reminded of what we do not have or where we fail to measure up. A number of scholars would say that this category of the lust of the eyes really would be better described or appropriately described as simple vanity. That we're not just living for our own comfort and our own sensuality, but we're living for the projection of an image. We're living so that we, what we see, we want, and we want others to see something in particular. We want to project that image, and we live our lives in order to project whatever images that we want to have so that others will see us in the way we want to see us. A lot of that is shaped by what we see around us as well. The third category John talks about is related to these, but is distinct itself. In the ESV, it says the pride in possessions, which is a good description. Some would say boasting in the possessions. It's not just the things that we have. It's not just the, 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 uh, the rewards of success. But it's finding our value and our identity and our place in our status, our rank, our achievements, or the tangible expressions of those things, the things that we're able to own, the things that we're able to possess. These three things, these three categories, again, they are broad and they overlap and they interact, but they do are a great representation of the function of the world that is around us. These are things that God has created that we, in our brokenness and in our fallen nature, have turned around, moved them out of their proper order, made them into some other order, inordinate desires, and then we revolve our lives around them as if somehow, if we were to measure up according to these things, that we can boast and feel better or superior to others, that we can project a particular image, or we just simply feel comfortable or things that are, are making us feel good, that our lives are to be lived out there, that we would find fulfillment and purpose and happiness. That's what our world screams. And it's in listening to those inordinate desires and in any way that they shape the priorities of our lives and the, the actions of our lives, that we have become worldly. We are listening to a voice other than God's voice to give us our identity and our direction and our value. It's a powerful voice. It's not unlike the siren songs of the great ancient Greek mythology. Most of you have probably studied that. But the sailors, as they were navigating through different parts of the world, would hear off in the distance the beautiful song of a siren. And they were attracted to that, not only not having heard a voice, but the beauty of the voice and the promises that came from the song. And they would redirect everything in order to get closer so they could hear it louder and more strongly. And the closer they got, the more they wanted to hear of the song. And they wanted to experience the promises of the song until they would grow closer and closer. And as they got close to the shore, the siren inevitably would bring them up on the rocks where the ship would become sunken and shipwrecked, and the people's lives would be in peril if they didn't die uh, outright. The siren song of the world is very similar. 
there is a beauty to it. Because the siren song of the world hasn't created anything, but just takes the beauty of what God has created and then puts so much attention to it and then attaches certain promises to it that play to our sensuality, play to our vanity, play to our pride, and speak to us and say, if you have these things, you will have it all. Come and take, come and participate. This is what you need to listen for. It's an intoxicating, an attractive song. Part of the reason that John is writing this is, I suspect, because there are Christians who are, may not even be aware that there is two, two different voices that are speaking and directing and guiding. And if we don't know, there would be no reason for us to assume that what we're hearing could be endangering to us. He's also writing because most of us do know. And yet it is such a seductive song that we need to be warned about the potential consequences. And John's very direct here when he reminds us that loving the world, the inordinate desires of the world, is antithetical to loving God. John says it in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, and now we have the context of that. We're not talking about the creation or people or the beauty of what God's created. But the systems of the world, the systems of the earth, if anyone loves that, if that is the object of your affection, and the love of the Father is not in you. That's a pretty stark statement to say, you can't listen to both. You have to choose. You have to be aware. And you have to tune your ear to be able to distinguish the difference. I remember hearing the story a long time ago, in different contexts, about a father who wanted his son to grow up more of a Renaissance child than, well, kind of like the jockish thugs that some of us prefer and have raised. But anyway, that's, uh... and so he took his son to the symphony to share his love of music and expose his son to things that, uh, that perhaps some of his friends were not being exposed to. And at the symphony, one of the things that he did in order to help his son to hunger for something, he would talk about the different parts of the symphony and the different instruments that were playing in the symphony. And at one point he would say something like this, oh, listen to that, that beautiful clarinet. The son is a young guy who hasn't been to the symphony very much at all and wasn't necessarily interested and excited about going to the symphony. And all he could hear is this, just the loud noise. Some he appreciated, some just sounded like loud noise. The idea of distinguishing certain instruments or certain parts that just was foreign to him, he had no ability to do that. He had no exposure to it whatsoever. But as his father continued to take him to the symphony and expose him to the different parts of it and to the different instruments in their individual solo portions, the son be able, began to be able to discern both the individual portions and then the beauty of them coming together. So that later on, his father was be able to say, listen to the beauty of and name the instrument. The son would be able to hear it because he heard it, he recognized it, and he could hear isolated or he could hear it in concert with everything else. The reason I share that is because there are two noises that are constantly screaming out and one tries to drown out the other. The noise of the siren song of the world, the worldliness, continues to scream out in every medium that we have at our disposal. And God continues to speak through his word and through his people in a loud but gentle voice. And we need to be able to be a people who can tell the difference between the siren song of the world and the voice of God. We need to be able to people that tune our ears to be able to hear not only the difference, but what it is that God is saying to us. 
how he guides us, how he directs us, how he encourages us, how he shapes us in our priorities and in our values. The only way to do that is the same way the father trained his son. It is through constant exposure to God's voice through his word and by his Holy Spirit as we spend time in conversational prayer with him. The more we are able to know what God says when he talks, what God sounds like, the more we'll be able to distinguish his voice from the voice of the world. So that when the promises are offered, we will be able to determine whether they are coming from God or whether they are coming from this world. And then at that point, we are then able to choose. John says we must choose. But not choosing actually is a hindrance to our relationship with God. Not choosing eventually makes us feel dull toward God. Not embracing the love that it's lavished upon us. As if the whole right and wrong concept wasn't enough to make us choose, John then goes on in verse 17, and he says, here's the results. While you're choosing, while you're making up your mind, which voice you're going to listen to, John says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of the Lord abides forever. In other words, John is saying, look, here's, here's the reality. The world, the values of the world, as beautiful as they may be, seem, as much as they may seem to offer, it's a sinking ship. If you're going to invest yourself there, think carefully about the investment that you're making in it because it's not going anywhere. I read not long ago about uh, a ship that was found off somewhere off the coast of Florida. The American scavengers had heard about it, read about it from ancient history, from not ancient history, but um, history prior to uh, the settlement of the states. Spanish ship had con gone to uh, come to the Americas for the gold and for the silver, and then sunk. The storm hit it on its way back and had never been found or, or had, had been raised. The scavengers found it and found that there were, they found 500,000 pieces of gold and silver on that ship. And now they and the Spanish government are engaged in international court as to who belong, who the gold and silver belongs to. I want you to back up for just a few hundred years and ask you if you were one who had the resources to invest in this ship that was going to go out and have tremendous dividends coming back. 500,000 pieces of gold and silver, and you can invest in that ship, would you want to invest in that ship? Especially if you had the opportunity to know in advance that this ship was going to sink. Sunken ships pay little dividend. They only break hearts. What John is saying here is it's not clear enough that there's a difference between God and the world to invest yourself and to go with the standards, the values, the ideas of the world, it is a sinking ship that is passing away. You will not get what you think you're going to get. It's passing away. Now, as a side note, I would suggest that some of the confusion that we have about the, the whole destruction of the earth and the return, especially when God promises that heaven is going to be coming down and the earth will be renewed to its all creation is, I suspect that this passage kind of speaks to that. It is the systems and the values of this world that are dying and are sinking. The earth that God made and is good will be restored to its full beauty and glory. 
to contrast the sinking ship to the promise that God makes, which is an expression of the gospel. It's a benefit of those who believe. It's not something we've earned or deserved, but in addition to the fellowship that we have with God, it's not just that we have the benefit of a friendship for a time that is valuable and we finally remember later on, sometime in eternity. But what John promises here, but the person who does the will of the Lord, who prioritizes God's standards, God's priorities, God himself, will abide and adore forever. It is the promise of God. I just want to wrap up with this. So studying, I, I ran across a statement that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a minister and a theologian a few generations ago in, in London, when he was commenting on this particular passage, he says this, there are so many people who are unhappy in their Christian life who are not getting the benefits and enjoyment simply because they have not faced a text like this. They have not allowed it to search them and influence their whole life. We need to understand what Lloyd-Jones is saying because it's what John's, in, it's John's intent. There are many of you here who are believers, but you're robbed of your joy. You're not getting what you thought you would get with the investment that you are putting in because the investment that you are making is not in what God says as much as what the world says and the world says God says. And we do it in a number of ways. Sometimes we do it by withdrawal and we have no joy because we have no fruitfulness. Sometimes we go the opposite direction and we just totally conform and we have no joy because we're actually being shaped by the world. Sometimes we do it impartial. We realize, well, John seems a little harsh, so we come up with rules and assume these things are worldly, these things are not. The old adage, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Now, that worked for me, but that wasn't, uh, wasn't, my, wasn't a standard. It just happened to work out that way. So I would commend the wisdom of it, but it's not God's word. I've always wondered what was wrong with billiard tables. Is a green one better than a red one? A deck of cards. Forbidding of all movies. And the list can go anywhere. Realizing there's some things that we shouldn't do, we're not sure what they are, perhaps the effects of some, whatever the reasons are, one of the ways that we tend to deal with things is not by going and saying, what has God said? but coming up with lists of our own and then declaring anybody who doesn't follow our list to be worldly, but we're not worldly. The irony is such people are worldly because they're using what they do and what they don't do as the basis of their identity and of their value and of their worth and of their superiority. When the godly say, my only hope and my only identity and the only identity I need is that the blood of Christ has washed me and has marked me as belonging to Jesus. And then there are those who decide that we're going to be we're not really in the world, but we don't want to be irrelevant, and so the world has some cool stuff, and so what we'll do is we'll just copy them, but just not do their thing. So we create Christian bowling night, as if a 7-10 split, picking that up in a Christian league is somehow more impressive than a non-Christian league. We like some of the songs, 
but they don't talk about Jesus, so we throw in a chorus that talks about Jesus, although most of the ones I hear, we leave the heresy in them, but we just add Jesus' name to it because we like it that way. And we approach things foolishly because we're not saying, let's listen to what God says. We're saying, let's do what we think seems right in our eyes. I wish I could go in a great direction here with this, but what we need to understand is it is antithetical to listen to the world because the world is giving us directions that are wrong. I would use this illustration in this way. It's timely, is, it's a poor timing of it in one sense, but imagine in a football game Peyton Manning was calling plays, but the plays were being called by the coach on the other team. I know some of you think he did that last week, but, <laughs> but the coach on the other team is not going to call plays that are beneficial for Peyton Manning or his team. They're going to call plays that are destructive for whatever the reason. That's their intent. And in a football game, that's fine. But in life, it's not. And what John is talking about is far more significant than a football game. And a more pertinent illustration than a coach and a player would be this. Imagine if our special forces were taking their orders, marching orders from Moscow. That still pales in comparison to the person who says, I believe in Christ, but I want to listen to the world. What Jones says, many of us have taken our marching orders from the world and we aren't experiencing the joy that we want because it is never going to happen that way. We've also gone the other way in assuming forsaking the world and all of its beauties is going to give us happiness and that's not what God says. God says desire is a gift from him. The objects are a gift from him. Listen to his guidance and use the things that he's given in the way that he describes and then we will have joy. Any other way, it's a sinking ship. Let me close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the way that you have revealed to, uh, your word to us. I pray that you would continue to bless us with wisdom and understanding that comes from your word and is applied by your spirit. We lean on our own wisdom and we make a mistake. But when we seek your face and your word and your spirit, your counsel, Lord, we are guided in a way that leads to everlasting and your word reminds us that that way of everlasting is not joyless, but joyful. Father, may we be a people full of joy as we enjoy you and the gifts that you have provided for us, giving thanks to you for them all. We pray in Jesus.